We're going to be finishing our sermon series through the book of Colossians this morning, so please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Here at Redemption Hill Church, we have made it our, our habit, our normal practice, to teach through and preach through books of the Bible in their entirety, to sort of walk through verse by verse, trying to understand the author's theme, trying to understand the context of these books, and to see each part of these books in relationship to the whole. So we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, the book of Genesis. We're finishing Colossians today. Michael Dietzel will be finishing Hosea next week. And we believe this is really the best way to study Scripture. Uh, And it helps those of us who teach, those of us who preach, to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God, as we've been called to do. And not just preach the parts that we like, or the the parts that we find easy to deal with, or the parts that we know others will like. So today brings us to Paul's final words to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 4. Our text for this morning is brief, and I'll read it for us now. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Father in heaven, as we come to the end of this book, we are thankful for your word, thankful for what you've taught us over the last several months in the study of this letter. And God, we ask for the thing that Paul wishes for, that grace would be granted. Give us grace to hear, to understand, to receive, to obey, and to apply all that we see in your word today. We thank you, God, for the gift that scripture is. It is a treasure. It's more precious than gold or silver. And so we come expectantly and thankfully to the word this morning, asking for your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine for just a moment, if you would. My kids are really good at imagining, pretending. So pretend with me just for a moment that you and I are in Colossae in the first century. And we've gathered together as the church because we've received this letter from a man we've never met, who's never been to our church, but he's well known to us. And his name is Paul, and he is an apostle. And he's written this letter to us, to our church. Our pastor, Epaphras, had gone to visit him and has come and, and, has, and that visit has resulted in the sending of this letter. Epaphras shared with Paul, as he's in Rome in prison, shared with him our situation. He told him about how we've received Christ and how we're growing and how the church is doing well, but there are these dangerous ideas, these worldly philosophies, these claims that are contrary to Christ. And so Paul has written to explain important doctrinal truths to us He's warned us about these dangerous philosophies and teachings, and he's given us practical instructions for how we should live as followers of Christ. And unlike the sermon series here at Redemption Hill Church, this letter has been read to us in one sitting, not over the course of months. But we've probably sat around for, I don't know, an hour, however long it would take, to read through this book out loud. And as we're sitting here, just having received this whole book in sort of one dose, then comes the final words, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So after all that has been said in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, how does Paul end this letter? What final lasting impression does he seek to leave us with as he comes to the conclusion of this letter? Well, Paul gives the church in Colossae three statements here. He gives first a personal greeting, then a personal plea, 
And then finally, a personal blessing. And these three statements give us insight into the heart of the apostle, but also serve to underscore the very message of Colossians itself. So I'd like to just walk through it this morning and reflect on what Paul has taught throughout this book. The first statement is a statement of personal greeting. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He's sent greetings to them already from those who were with him in Rome. And he's given greetings to those by name, many of whom are in Colossae. And now he gives his personal greeting. I, Paul, myself, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Now, this greeting that Paul gave to them is more than simply a formality. I don't know if any of you guys are like me. You set up your email so that when you start a new draft, it automatically has your name and maybe your phone number. And if it's a work email, maybe it's got your job description at the bottom. This is not like one of those automatic email signatures where it's just an afterthought uh, that doesn't that just happens all the time no this is intentional it has meaning and I think with for Paul to give them this personal greeting to, to list his name and to mention that he's writing this with his own hand communicates a couple of things to us first of all it shows authenticity of this letter It's genuine. Paul has likely dictated this letter out loud, and someone else has written it down for him. Maybe Timothy, maybe someone else. But now he personally lifts his hand to the quill, heavy with the clinking of chains as he is bound in prison. And he writes to greet them and sign his own name, name, showing that no one has slipped anything in that he doesn't stand by. He stands by every word written in this letter and is personally signing off on it to authenticate its contents. This signature shows us authenticity. But secondly, it shows authority. Authority. Remember, they've just heard this letter read publicly in one sitting. So think about this. Every doctrinal assertion that Paul makes and every practical instruction for how they are supposed to be living is still ringing in their ears. It's fresh to them. And now Paul, in signing his name, reminds them of his apostolic authority. He mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's who's writing this letter to them. And in signing his name, he reminds them that he speaks for Christ. And he speaks as an apostle with the authority that Jesus Christ himself has conferred upon him. The supreme Christ, the one who's preeminent over all things, that's the one who authorizes Paul. And Paul is the one who's speaking to them. So in signing this letter with his name, he reminds them that everything he has said to them about the supremacy of Christ, everything he has said to them about the truth of the gospel, the danger of worldly philosophies, the emptiness of religious rituals, the practical instructions on life in the church and in the home and in the world, all of it carries weight. It carries weight because of his apostolic authority. You know, the preeminent question, both then and now, today, in discerning truth, is always this question. Who says? Who says that something is true? Who says that I should do this or not do that? Who says that this is the most important thing or that is an unimportant thing? Who says? If the source is authoritative and trustworthy then the claim must be true. Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle, have written these things to you, and I am one who bears the authority that Christ himself has conferred upon me. So when Paul writes to them, 
He's giving them the very word of God. So there is utmost authority in what he has said. As Romans 4, 4 says, when we come to scripture, we cry out, let God be true, though every man a liar. This is the source of authority for us. So Paul shows his authentic, the authenticity of this letter. He demonstrates his authority as an apostle, but also I think he's demonstrating for these people real affection. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. This is a personal touch that shows his pastoral care for these people. It communicates warmth. He's not just rattling off impersonal orders as a, a general may to a sergeant to give to a brigade with people he's never met that are perhaps at times numbers. No, he shares his very heart with these people in writing this letter to them. We see this throughout the book. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he's told them that he is thankful for them. He says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He says in verse 9 that he's always praying for them. He says, so from the day we heard, speaking of their conversion, since the day we heard of your salvation in Christ, we've not ceased to pray for you. He has shared with them that he desires their growth and their joy. He prays in chapter 1, verse 9, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's told them that he toils and labors for them. He said in chapter 1, verse 28, that he proclaims Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Here's what he wants for them. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You see, Paul is concerned for them. He wants their good and their joy and their growth and their maturity. And he's concerned for their spiritual safety. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says in verse 8 of chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, this is the mark of a Christ-like leader, is it not? One who cares for the souls that he is responsible for. You see, Christ cared for his own. He laid down his life for the sheep. And those who would lead in Christ's church must also reflect the master's love for the flock. And I love here how this aspect of both his apostolic authority and his affection for these people really serves to confront a false dichotomy that is unfortunately alive and well in the church today. There are some people who say that a love for the truth and a love for people are somehow opposites. Like you have to pick one or the other. Like, oh, this brother is, is a wonderful person. He, he's a champion for the truth. He, he fights against error, and, and he wants to teach so that people understand the truth. He, but he really doesn't you know, love people very well. But he's more of a truth guy. You say, well, this sister over here, 
She is so sweet, and she really cares about people. She's got so much compassion. She's really no, not that interested in truth and doctrinal clarity. She just loves people. As if somehow these two things are opposites that are not compatible. But what we find here in Colossians is actually a blend of the two. In the ministry of Paul, we find a commitment to doctrinal precision, theological clarity, a refusal to settle for anything less than the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, we find that he has a deep level of personal care for people. They go hand in hand. Paul is championing the truth, he's refuting error, and he's doing it not in spite of his love for people, but because of his love and devotion to these people. Because he loves them and wants nothing less than their full assurance and joy. Let me ask, does this describe you? Would someone describe you as as a person who loves the truth and is passionate for the truth and the clarity of the truth and the purity of the truth, but who also who has a care for those whom Christ loves, people who are in need of truth so that their joy may be full, so they can have deep roots and grow to maturity. There is no conflict of interest between pure doctrine and practical love, not at least according to Scripture. So we need to cultivate a commitment to both God's word and God's people. They go hand in hand. So Paul, in concluding this letter, has sent a personal greeting, signed with his own hand, showing that this letter is authentic, showing his apostolic authority to underscore everything that he said, but also demonstrating his personal affection for these people. It's the first statement, a personal greeting. The second statement is a personal plea, a plea. He asks them for something. Chapter 4, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Here comes the plea. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. Paul's referencing his imprisonment. He's writing right now under house arrest, and the chains are shackled to his wrists. Reminding them about this would have explained why, though he has great affection for these people, though he cares deeply for them and wants them to grow, it sort of explains why he didn't just come and visit, why he didn't just come and teach them these things himself and help to guard them against error and help them to grow into maturity. He couldn't. He couldn't go and visit. He was not a free man. His ministry to them, rather, was one of prayer, as we see in chapter 1, and one that led to him writing this letter to them. It's the best he could do under the circumstances. And in addition, this request to remember his chains also reveals that while Paul does care for them, he also needs them to care for him. Paul is suffering. He's unsure of his future. And he's already asked them once to pray for him back in verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's asked them to pray already for his ministry to remain faithful, that God would open doors for the gospel to be shared. But I think in asking them to remember his chains, he's also asking that they would pray that he would endure, that he would experience God's comfort and protection. 
He's already asked them you know, for prayer earlier, and he said a lot of things in this letter. Now he wants to remind them one last time, hey, I know I've said a lot of things just now, but please don't forget to pray for me. Don't, pray, don't forget to pray for me. He may be an apostle, but he's still human. You see, no matter how dynamic a person's gifts may be, no matter how mature or godly a person may be, no one is above the need for care from fellow believers. And while the Colossian church was indebted to Paul and stood greatly to benefit from his ministry to them, the reality was he needed them to care for him as well. He needed their ministry. Do you sometimes think that, that you have little to offer because you feel like, you know what, other people's gifts or other people's accomplishments in the ministry sort of make you know, my little contribution irrelevant? That's the opposite of true. In fact, those who, like Paul, who often accomplish the most and who seem to have the greatest gifts and who care the greatest responsibilities in ministry are often those who sacrifice the most and who carry heavy burdens, and they greatly need your care and your prayers and your encouragement and your support. Paul says, remember my chains. I need you guys too, just as much as you need what I have to offer you. And I think this also would have added even more weight to what he's already taught them in terms of the doctrinal claims he's made about Christ and the gospel and the pastoral exhortations he's given them about how they should live in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Because not only does he have the authority of an apostle to tell them these things, but he was modeling faithfulness for them, showing them what it looked like to to hold to Christ as supreme no matter what the personal cost Paul believed that Christ was preeminent, that his gospel was sufficient, and he was willing to suffer for it. He told us at the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 3 that the reason he is in prison is because he has been proclaiming the mystery of Christ. He's been preaching the gospel. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. And this is really the proof of genuine faith. The proof of genuine faith is that we're willing to continue in it even when there's opposition. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, Paul has summarized the gospel for them. He says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who we were before Christ in our sin. He says, you who once were like that, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Then comes verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says this great salvation has been given to us through Christ and those who receive it, those who experience it, are those who have faith. But Paul reminds them that the kind of faith that is genuine, the kind of faith that experiences God's gracious work of salvation, is the kind of faith that is authentic and endures and continues and remains, that does not turn away from Christ. The Apostle John tells us that those who depart from the faith are just evidencing that they never had it to begin with. And Paul is modeling faithfulness to Christ for them. Because nowhere is continuing in the faith more proven than in the face of suffering. And if Paul was willing to be imprisoned for preaching Christ, I think there's an implication here that they must be willing also 
to be faithful to Jesus no matter the cost. Paul is sort of like a general here charging into battle, rallying the troops and in seeking to inspire them by his example to remain faithful to Christ. You know, it's one thing to say that you believe that Jesus is preeminent and that the message of the gospel is true, but it's quite another thing to suffer for it. Sometimes we may hesitate out of fear, apprehension. We may hesitate at the cost of following and proclaiming Christ, but we have to remember that the one we follow, the one we believe in, Jesus, went to the cross. Hebrews tells us that he despised the shame. He did not let that intimidate him. He did not let the suffering or the humiliation of the cross deter him from doing what he knew was the will of the Father. And now Jesus calls us to take up our own cross and follow him. And when we see other fellow believers who are faithful to the call, willing to suffer like Paul, it inspires us, doesn't it? Inspires us to follow. And when we are faithful to the call, God can use our costly obedience to inspire others as well. So Paul has given them a personal greeting. He's made this plea, remember my chains, which would have invited their prayer and their compassion, but also inspired them to be faithful. And then finally, he leaves them with his personal wishes, a word of benediction, a blessing. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my chains, and then finally, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Paul's final word to them, the lasting impression he wants them to come away with, the expression of his heart and a summary of the gospel that he has explained to them is this one word, grace. It's grace. The word grace, as Paul is using it here, means the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. It's not something that we earn. It's not given as a reward or a wage. It is a gift to be received by faith. If we look back throughout the book of Colossians, we'll find that Paul's portrait of grace throughout this book includes both the grace that forgives sin, the grace that sets us free and makes us new, and the grace that empowers change, the grace that energizes ministry, the grace that sustains our Christian life. And Paul's wish for them is that they would experience this divine grace. This one little word really encapsulates the message of this book. It's the substance of this letter from the opening note to the final word. If you look back in chapter 1, that's how he started things. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he gets to the end of the letter and ends on that same note. Grace be with you. From the opening note to the final word. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, what Paul has been unpacking on these pages, is fundamentally a message of grace. The centrality of grace is seen in the spread of the gospel. We see that in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, 
As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul describes the gospel itself, defines it as the grace of God in truth. And he says that you've seen and experienced this grace because the gospel is spreading among you. The gospel message is grace extended to us. The truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus that brings salvation and produces real change and bears tangible fruit. And that's what was going on in Colossae. And Paul says that is grace. That is grace at work. The fact that Epaphras was there to labor and tell them about this gospel was God's grace. The fact that people believed in this gospel is evidence of God's grace at work in them. The fact that they are growing and loving their fellow believers is evidence of God's grace at work in them. The centrality of grace is seen in the spread of the gospel. But the centrality of grace is also seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the subject so often of Paul's writings here is who is Jesus, what did Jesus accomplish, and what is the place of Jesus in the plan of God, in the kingdom of God? Paul's answer is that Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the one who through his death is reconciling us to God. Jesus is the one who is coming again to bring an inheritance for all who believe in him. Jesus is the one we need. His work is sufficient. He's been talking so much of Christ. And so to wish grace to these people really means to wish them a deeper experience of Christ. To experience grace is to know Jesus. To experience grace is to rest in his work. To experience grace is to to see his ongoing work in your own life. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes that the word, speaking of God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Do you know it? Grace and truth. John continues, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For Paul to wish them grace is to wish them to have a deeper experience of Christ himself. To know him personally. To to know his power and his working. Because the work of Christ brings reconciliation with God. The work of Christ brings freedom from sin. Paul tells us back in chapter 1 that we've been been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is this but an unpacking of that word, grace? The blessings of salvation are so plentiful that Paul refers to the gospel in verse 27 of chapter 1 as the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The centrality of grace is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I think as we continue on throughout Colossians, we also see the centrality of grace in the defense of the truth. Look at chapter 2. You see, Paul, as we mentioned earlier, wants to protect the message of grace because there were other ideas creeping into the church 
There were other people seeking to minimize Jesus Christ and all of his accomplishments and tell these people that they needed Jesus and something else, which would have destroyed the message of grace. Paul wanted to protect them from the distance brought on by mysticism. Paul speaks in chapter 2 about these ideas about needing to go through angels and, and these mystical experiences that somehow that we can't actually have a direct communication with God through Christ. He wants to protect the message of grace from mysticism. He wants to protect the message of grace from legalism's crushing burdens. He tells them that it matters not that they keep certain feast days. It matters not whether they are circumcised or uncircumcised. That matters not whether they eat certain things or don't eat certain things because Christ has fulfilled the law. And we're not made right with God. We don't experience salvation through the things that we do, our efforts to be righteous. It is received by grace through faith in Christ. The message of legalism, the requirement to earn God's favor and his love and his forgiveness is a crushing burden that destroys the message of grace. Paul also wanted to protect them from the futility of empty rituals and, and seeking to deny themselves certain things, thinking that this will somehow make them closer to God. He says at the end of chapter 2, verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Notice what he says that destroys this graceless gospel. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says there's no power in a graceless gospel, and he wants to protect the message of grace from all these various forms of corruption. He does not want them to be taken captive. He does not want them to be robbed of their freedom in Christ. He does not want them to be deceived by false teachers. The message of Christ, the message of grace must be defended. It must be defended, and Paul does that. And then we see, as Paul turns the corner after talking about doctrine, we see the centrality of grace also in the life of the church. Paul urges them that because of who Jesus is, because of this grace that is extended to us through Christ, that should affect the way we live. As those who've been made new, as those who've been forgiven, as those who've been set free, and that it matters now how we live. It matters how you live and how I live. The implications matter. He told them in chapter 2, Verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There are implications to believing Christ and receiving grace in him. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We are to, in verse 2, set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. He tells us in verse 5 that we are to put to death what is earthly in us waging war against remaining sin. He tells us in verse 8 that we must put all these things away. And he says in verse 10, it's because we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. 
The implications of grace include transformed virtues, new values, changed relationships and dynamics among the family, in the home, and in the church, and even the way we engage and relate to the world, that even our speech takes on the flavor of grace. In chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This grace, when it is received and experienced, leaves an imprint on our lives. It changes us. It changes us. There are implications. Grace is the first and final note of Paul's song. He begins and ends with grace, and it's grace all the way through. And I think this shows us that as Paul is writing this letter to these people, that God in his wisdom inspired and then preserved for us, it shows us that this grace is not just to be understood. It's truly meant to be experienced. It is both the substance of this letter, but also the aim of this letter. Paul says, grace be with you. Not only that they must understand these truths, but he wants them to experience the ongoing work of grace in their lives. This book is filled not only with explosive doctrines, but also with the language of experience. Just to survey what Paul has said, he prayed in chapter 1, verse 9, that they would be filled. In chapter 1, verse 11, that they would be strengthened. In verses 28 and 29, he says he labors that they might become mature. Chapter 2, verse 2, verse two he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He tells them that he wants them to be rooted and built up and established in the faith. There is experiential language as much as there is powerful doctrine in this letter. And Paul knows that what they need most is God's grace. That's what they need to understand and believe and hold to and depend on and experience. And he wants that for them more than he wants anything else in the world. And that, my friends, is why he preaches Christ. Because apart from Christ, this grace can never be experienced. That's why he lifts up Jesus as supreme. That's why he celebrates Christ's work of redemption as completely and totally and perfectly sufficient. So friends, if you want to experience God's grace, then we must fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And if we want other people to experience God's grace, then we must proclaim Christ. It's really that simple. Colossians teaches us to look to Christ as the supreme and sufficient Savior. It teaches us that his work is enough, that we are complete in him. Redemption has been accomplished, and we are now free, forgiven, new, and destined for glory if we believe in this Savior and trust fully and only in his work. The explosive center of Paul's preaching is the good news that salvation depends not on our efforts, not on our good works, not on our denial of the flesh or our keeping of the law, but it depends only and fully and finally on Jesus Christ. And this is grace. It's grace. So I have to ask you this morning, have you experienced this grace? Have you? You may know all about Christianity. You may be able to explain you know, many of the Bible stories and perhaps even several biblical doctrines. Maybe you've grown up in the church, in your families, 
your extended family has been believers for generations. But let me ask you, have you personally experienced this grace? If you don't know Christ this morning, then what you need to hear is this message of grace. That God freely grants forgiveness and freedom and life and eternal reward to all who believe. And he requires one thing from you. Simply that you fully trust in the work of his son, Jesus. You may know a lot of things, but if you don't personally know Christ, if you haven't experienced this grace, will you receive it today by trusting in Jesus? Trust in Jesus. Bow before him as supreme. Rest in the sufficiency of his death and his resurrection to save you, to meet your greatest need, to reconcile you to a holy God. This is what Jesus has accomplished in the shedding of his blood. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That can be true of you. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, instead of being dead in your trespasses, God can make you alive. Instead of being guilty and condemned, God can forgive your sins. Instead of having a record of debt standing against you with legal demands, God can nail it to the cross in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and grant you salvation if you will believe, if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Not your efforts, but Jesus Christ. In him alone. Believer, those of us who believe this, who know this, who sing songs like we sang this morning about his mercy and his love, who, who sing those songs with gratitude, let, let me ask you, is this grace and the person of Jesus Christ in whom we see and experience this grace, is this grace at the center of your life? I think it's sad that too often God's grace to us, his gift of his son, is like a beautifully wrapped gift that we have received, maybe at Christmas or a birthday or something like that. But it's a gift that we've failed to fully open, a gift that we have failed to fully enjoy, a gift that perhaps we have forgotten is ours. Although it ought to be our most prized possession, sometimes I think grace sort of gets forgotten in the junk drawer of our heart. You have a junk drawer like that at home? And you're digging through looking for something and you find something else that you forgot you had? Sometimes I think grace is like that for many Christians. It comes, becomes common to us, perhaps loses its shine because it's not new anymore in our eyes. Perhaps you need to discover, rediscover perhaps, the wonder of grace. And at the risk of sounding redundant, if I can say it one more time, this happens, this grace is experienced when we gaze upon Christ. Grace is not simply an abstract principle. It's a divine person, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus, as the supreme Savior, as the all-sufficient Savior, is meant to be seen, to be sought, to be treasured, and to be worshipped. So if grace has become forgotten in your life, gaze upon God's Son, Jesus Christ, this morning and rediscover the wonder and the beauty of God's grace towards us.
It's in the displaying of grace in Christ that God has magnified his glory. And I hope that our time in Colossians together over the last several months has helped you not only to better understand this book, but also to see and treasure as supreme the Savior that this book points to. I want to close this morning with the words of 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle. In commenting on Colossians 3, verse 11, he wrote this. True Christians have trustful thoughts of Christ. They daily lean the weight of their souls upon him by faith for pardon and peace. They daily commit the care of their souls to him as a man commits a treasure to a safekeeper. They daily cling to him by faith as a child in a crowd clings to his, its mother's hand. They look to him daily for mercy, grace, comfort, help, strength, guidance. Christ is the rock under their feet, the staff in their hands, their ark and city of refuge, their sun and their shield, their bread and their medicine, their health and their light, their fountain and their shelter, their portion and their home, their advocate and their physician, their captain and their elder brother, their life their hope, and their all. Lord Jesus, as we have gazed upon you in this amazing letter to the church at Colossae, Lord, it's overwhelming to think about all that you have done for us, that it depends not on our efforts, our goodness, our intellect, our righteousness, but salvation depends on you. And that this gift of grace has been granted to us who believe. Lord Jesus, you are all. And we desire that in all things you would be preeminent. That you would be seen and obeyed and worshipped as supreme over all things. That in the light of your glory, we would reject any other supposed gospel. That would minimize you and put grace on the sideline. That in the light of your glory and grace, we would seek to put to death the sin that remains in our heart and to put on the new self. That in light of your glory and grace, we would turn our gaze and our eyes away from all the things of this world and instead set our minds on things above where you are, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that our hope would be in you. God, if there's any here today who do not yet know you, Lord, please help them to understand your grace. And I pray that even now, you would pour out your grace upon them by convicting them of their sin. Grant them the grace of guilt, the knowledge that they stand condemned before you because of their sin. And Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction through your Holy Spirit, your gracious work to, to expose in their heart their need for salvation. And I pray that through the gracious work of your Spirit, you would draw them to yourself and that you would apply the grace of redemption, the blood of the cross to their, to their lives. Cleanse them, redeem them, save them. And by the grace that only comes through Christ, they would be transformed, made new, made holy, so that they can live for you in your glory. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.